Leaves. You're listening to CITR F102, Keep 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard from Riverside, California, the misunderstood friends of John Peel and the tune Find a Hidden Door. And the misunderstood are profiled in Ugly Things magazine and Rick from the Misunderstood has written an entire book about his life. Rick Brown. Today on the Nardward Human Serviette Radio Show, a couple interviews with Ian Mackay, Daniel Johnston, and Jay-Z. All older interviews as profiled before on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. Shh, radio. Radio, radio show. Who are you? I'm Ian Mackay of Fugazi from Washington, D.C. Ian, you're in here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Burnaby, Canada. DOA, minor threat. You have a poster in your hand. What do you remember about that? This show actually is uh, fairly legendary in, in Washington, D.C. terms. DOA first came to Washington, D.C. in October of 1979. They played a commune called Madam's Organ. And uh, we, um, actually, I was sick that night. It's one of the two or three shows I actually intensely regret 
not going to. But everyone came back and said, this band from Canada is incredible. They, this is 1979 where nobody was touring, and they showed up and played in a really, like a hovel, basically. It was a commune. It was so, like, the PA was made out of, like, oatmeal canisters and stuff. And so the fact they had come, everyone was saying, DOA. And the tape, there's a live tape from that show that was just spread around. That everyone just traded and traded and traded. Um, in 1981, was it 81? Was it 80? Well, I guess it was 81, yeah. Um, 81. Uh, we got word that they were they wanted to come down from New York. They're doing a show in New York, and they wanted to come down. And we had no real access to any venues whatsoever. But there was this high school, H.P. Woodlawn. There was an alternative kind of a high school, and they let us do one gig before. So we had another gig sort of set up there. So we called DOA and said, like, well, if you guys want to come down, we can't pay you. But if you want to come down and play this high school, we'll let you play on this show we have. It was just like a, it was like a, it was a free gig basically, and they just showed up. They played an incredible set. We just passed a hat. We raised like you know, 75 bucks. They were totally happy um, to get this dough. But most importantly, like that that, the fact they had shown up meant so much to us that it was like it actually was one of the the main reasons that as like a band like Fugazi or anything I've ever been involved with. There's always we've always had this kind of like philosophy of like you always must make the gig. Like, if DOA can make it to a high school just to pass a hat in 1981, we damn sure have to make it to every gig we ever commit to. It's like, that's, the, like, the most important thing. That was really inspirational. DOA, you know, they were, they were like, I think a lot of times people forget what an important band they were. And the fact they toured as much as they did early on, they were really, like, the Mavericks, or, like, one of the, them and Black Flag, and they were the bands that really went out and, like, blazed the trail. You also enjoyed the Subhumans, right? Didn't you guys yeah. play with them? Yeah, yeah. Subhumans. I, actually, my third didn't play with Subhumans. That was Black. Um, the Bad Brains and SOA played with Subhumans. Subhumans stayed at my parents' house. So did DOA, for that matter. You know, we all, everyone came and stayed at my parents' house. And um, yeah, I remember the Subhuman guys too. They were great guys. And that was a really cool show. That show was shut down. Um, it was at a place called the Rumba Club. It was on the corner of like, an alley. And uh, SOA and Bad Brains are great. Both, both men are so great. And the Subhumans came on um, and. Actually, I guess they played before this um, Bad Range, but when they were playing, this guy who was like a Krishna guy lived in an apartment building behind there, was trying to meditate, and there was so much noise coming up that he called the police, and the police raided the show during the subhuman set, and there was a long sort of discussion about whether the show would go on. They did go on, but so, yeah, some of them were a really cool band as well. When DOA did Hardcore 81, was that the first time you heard the word hardcore? I don't know, actually. We've thought about, I've thought about that a lot. I remember from our point of view, the reason that we started using the term hardcore is that we were really trying to um, differentiate between what people were calling punk rock, which is like this very Sid Vicious kind of kind of New York or London kind of posy kind of uh, st fashion, like a fashion thing. Like it was like that was punk rock. Like you're supposed to, you know, spit on yourself and this, all this kind of stuff. And we thought, well, we're not. That's like a fashion thing. We're hardcore punk rock kids like we like so you know hard shell baptist have you ever heard that term hard shell baptist well hard shell baptist is a person whose relationship with god is so intense they actually don't need to follow any of the like they can drink and smoke and pour around doing anything they want because that's how hard shell they are so the hardcore punk doesn't really need to like do any of the stuff that people sort of attribute to punk rockers other than just like be dedicated to what they're doing. So that's why we first started using that term. I don't know if DOA is the first band to use that, but it was right at the same time. It all happened at the same time. 
Ian, how about other Canadian bands? Like, I know the rock and roll band Sloan, and they told me they made a pilgrimage to Washington, D.C. in about 1988 and almost stayed at your house. Do you remember some guys from Halifax coming to your house? Yeah, sure. There's also a band called Jellyfish from in Halifax. I think we're involved with this. Jellyfish thing. Babies. Jellyfish Babies, right. Yeah, they actually, they were, those guys were cool. They would drive all the way down for like these, we did shows in these, this free show in the park. Um, and they would come down and we'd run into them from time to time. Um, I don't know many Eastern ca Canadian bands, like like Halifax bands. I only know a handful. Obviously, when we tour, we play with bands. You know, we've met people like that. I remember a band called Porcelain Head. Do you remember them? They were from... Porcelain Forehead. Porcelain Forehead, yeah. You are the man. Um, I, I always liked them. They were kind of cool. There's been, over the years, been you know, there's been bands I'm like, ah. Oh. Okay, of course, in the vile tones, of course. Which were, Did you see them? Never saw them. But that single was one of our, like... You know, that was like part of the constellation. One of their t-shirts is for sale in LA for $250. US. No, people will buy it and that's what they'll sell it for, I guess. So Ian, are you a vegan? Why do you ask? Just curious what you've been eating on tour and how Canada's been doing. I understand you went had some good food there in Winnipeg. Where did you hear that from? Oh, just heard it from a little bird. Did you eat some good food in Winnipeg, Ian? I did eat good food. I've actually, Canada's been very good for food. But I don't generally don't think that interesting to talk about my diet, so... Well, just curious, what is something you eat two of? What do I eat two of? Like, right now, if I saw some cheese, I'd have two slices of cheese. Is there something you like to have two of, Ian? Uh, two bananas could never hurt anybody. I was curious, Ian, when you're living there in D.C., people coming to your house, did you one time have a stalker living on your lawn? Like, in about 85? Did I have a stalker? There was a woman who once came and lived on a porch, but it's not actually a very humorous story. She ended up killing herself, so. How about the rest of the members of Fugazi? Doesn't Joe live in some sort of satanic house or some house that was deemed satanic, Ian? Yeah, according to the Prince George's County Police, yeah, Joe lived in a house that was a bunch of young kids living together. It was outside of a university. And, you know, they were into, you know, they listened to Joy Division and stuff like that, but they weren't Satanists by any means. But what had happened was that uh, one, of the, one of the people who lived in the house had found... In the university's a biology section, they found a bunch of dead cats in the dumpster. And they thought, oh, this would be cool. We'll get some cat skulls. So they had these dead cats hanging to, in the sun to try to get the, you know, to get the hide off, basically, trying to get back to the bones. And somebody called the police when they raided the house. It was like in the paper. They were satanic, a satanic cult and all this stuff. Um, I don't think they were. I think that's just a, a typical kind of misunderstanding. Ian, your dad was in the Kennedy motorcade. I find this fascinating. Please explain if you could. Where did you hear that? In Punk Planet, collected interviews. Oh, yes. Uh, my father was uh, on the White, White House press corps in 1960, uh, 61. He would work for the uh, Houston Chronicle? No, Minneapolis Star at that time, I guess. And uh, he was just in the press corps and he was in the motorcade. He was just in a bus with a bunch of the other journalists following you know, the limousine as they came into Dallas. But he was not, like, you know, they were, like, two blocks back. So they had no idea what had happened. It was just suddenly, the bus they were riding in just suddenly accelerating and just whipped right through Dealey Plaza where the shooting occurred. Um, and they saw everybody running. They knew something bad had happened, but no one had any idea. They didn't know what had happened at all until they got to Parkland Hospital. They just pulled up in front of the hospital, and that's when it became apparent that something very bad it happened at that point. Has your dad seen JFK or does he have any conspiracy theories about it? Like, you know, the driver killing Kennedy? No, my father actually really, he doesn't think anybody did it but Oswald. He has no conspiracy theories whatsoever about that. He has more conspiracy. My father actually feels like the real 
The real mystery is not the JFK shooting. It's the Martin Luther King. He thinks that's, that is nonsense. That was a setup. He didn't think James Earl Ray did that alone. He thinks that was definitely a conspiracy. He's a pretty smart guy, too, editing the crossword puzzle. That's not too easy, is it, for the Washington Post? I think it's a, sort of a habit thing. If you're in the habit of doing crossword puzzles, it's not that hard to edit them. He's been doing it for quite a while. My father, both my parents are, are certainly not, um, they're both very intelligent people. When Fear played on Saturday Night Live, Ian, did you go down to Saturday Night Live and check it out in New York with Rollins and the gang? Rollins was not there. Uh, I'll tell you the story about that if you'd like to hear the story about that. In 8 in the morning, uh, some point in October, I got a call. Um, I was driving a newspaper truck for the Washington Post at the time, so 8 in the morning was brutal. Uh, it was Lauren Michaels' office calling, Lauren Michaels being the producer of Saturday Night Live. And I get this, this woman who said, Lauren Michaels' office, please hold. Now, I was completely delirious. Um, Lauren Michaels comes in the phone. He goes, hi, Ian, this is Lauren Michaels of Saturday Night Live. I'm calling you because um, I got your number from John Belushi. Uh, he says that uh, you might be able to help us get some dancers up here because we want to have fear on the show. I was completely baffled by this. And I, couldn't, I was like, pardon me? He goes, hold on a second. And then John Belushi gets on the phone. He's like, and he says, hey, this is John Belushi. Um, I'm a big fan of Fears. I made a deal with Saturday Night Live that I would make a cameo appearance on the show if they would let Fear play. Um, I got your number from Penelope Spears, who did Decline of Western Civilization, and she said that you guys, the Washington, D.C. punk rock kids, know how to dance. And so I wanted to get you guys to come up to the show. And, uh, you know, you guys can all come up. So it worked out that we could all arrive at the uh, Rockefeller Center where the, where the Saturday Night Live was being filmed. Um, the password to get in was Ian Mackay. And... Um, we went out the day before. The Misfits played with the Necros um, at the Ukrainian Hall, I think. So all the Detroit people were there, like Tesco V and Corey Rusk and all those people from the Necros and the Touch and Go people. And uh, a bunch of D.C. people, maybe 15 or 20 of us, came up from D.C. Henry was gone. He was living in L.A. at this point. So um, we went to the show. Uh, during the dress rehearsal, things got the camera got knocked over. We were dancing. They were very angry with us, and they said they were going to lock up, you know, they were going to not let us do it and whatever. And then Belushi really put his foot down and insisted on it. So then during the actual set itself, they let us come out again. But if you watch the show, have you seen it? Yes, I have. Well, if you watch it, you know, there's a, during the show, before they go to commercials, they always go to this jack-o'-lantern, this carved pumpkin. Um, but right before, if you watch it during the song, you'll see one of our guys, this guy Bill McKenzie, coming out holding the pumpkin above his head because he's just, he's just getting ready to smash it. And that's when they cut, they just cut it off. They cut us off, they kicked us out, they locked us up. For like two hours, we were locked in a room after that. They were so angry with us about um, the behavior. I, I didn't think it was all that big of a they deal. They locked you in a room? Yeah, we were locked in a room. They said they were going to sue us and have us arrested for damages. There wasn't, there was such an, um, so much hype about that. The New York Post reported like five, half a million dollars worth of damage on stuff, but it, it was nothing. It was like a little plastic clip or something got broken. It was um, it was a very interesting experience, and um, I realized how completely unnatural it is for a band to suddenly to be on a television show, particularly a band like a punk band that kind of has a momentum to suddenly be expected to like immediately just jump in to like 
a song in that kind of setting. It was very weird. It was largely unpleasant. It made me realize, yeah, that's something I'm not interested in doing. Was Rollins the hardest dancer? I know he wasn't there. Was he the hardest dancer in D.C.? I don't think there's a, any kind of meter for that sort of thing. I couldn't tell you. Or one of the wilder ones? Because you mentioned one of those guys sort of the Saturday Night Live. Who were some of the ones that stick out in your mind as some of the more, more adventuresome dancers there, Ian? We were all, we all had our own styles. I mean, the thing about D.C. kids is that we actually danced. I think a lot of people really, there was this whole thing that kind of came up later on, which was called whatever it was called. But we never did, like, the slam dancing thing was always kind of a media invention. We actually had, like, somewhat of a choreography in our dancing, we felt like. Um, we were also tough, though. I mean, there was a lot of, it was an era where there was a lot of fighting going on. That was part of that era. You know, like, I think when punk was new, it caused a lot of friction. And I think that a lot of the kids who were involved with it uh, fell prey to a lot of the more aggressive elements of society. So kids fought back. And then it became, that language became a little bit too deeply ingrained in the community. And then the violence itself became a problem and that needed to be eradicated, you know. Have you been in the slam pit at all? In my life? Yeah, recently. I, uh, no. I thought in Brazil you jumped in a giant circle pit. Oh, that was 1994. Was that, is that recent? Well, kind of recent. That actually was a show we played in um, Belo Horizonte. It was like this giant free festival. It was the first independent festival they'd ever done. It was in a parking lot of a train station. There was about 4,000 people there. The stage was about 26 feet high. It was a totally absurd situation. But between the bands, um, over the PA, they would play... Um, like uh, what's, what's Sepultura? that? Sepultura, exactly. Bands like Sepultura, they love like grindcore metal kind of stuff. And when they would play these bands, this insane like five or six hundred like peopled circle would develop. And Guy and I were just watching. Like we were incredulous. It just seems impossible that this many people were dancing. And it was it was as big as this field. Here, show them the field so you get a sense of the. I mean, it was a huge, huge. Um, circle, pit. circle pit thing. And so Guy said, I'll give you a buck if you go for that. So I just got, it was, I just did the whole, like, one circulation. It was incredible, actually. I mean, I, it was, I was laughing so hard. And it was, I mean, it was totally enjoyable. Those kids were not slamming, per se. There was no, like, punches being thrown. It was just, just dancing in a giant circle. At Hagen Doss, working there with Henry Rollins, did you guys once put out rat poison as a topping? That is true. But we didn't, obviously didn't serve it. We just thought it was funny because it was pink and colorful. And nobody ever asked for it, so. I don't think we would have put out too long, but I think that the idea was that it just looked so humorous among, like, the, the jimmies, the sprinkles, the coconut, you know, the raisins, and then you have this little pink confection. Did you and Henry also give a rat a mohawk? Henry, that was his, mo his rat, Spike. You gave it a mohawk, or he gave he it a did. mohawk? I didn't, I was, he was actually not a mohawk, it was a stripe. It wasn't a, sh a haircut, it was a hair dye. He put a black stripe down his back. And what's this about it being in the freezer and then melting on Jello by Afro, Ian? Well, when the rat died, the rat was gotten from... Uh, Henry worked at NIH, which was uh, National Institute of Health. And his job at the time when he was a teenager was he had to deal with um, basically gassing rats who were experiment rats. So they would just do these experiments with like 400 rats, and then he would take the rats and put them into like a garbage bag and then gas them and kill them all. So he decided to liberate one of the rats, which was Spike. Um, but whatever tests they were doing on this rat ended up in developing some very bizarre tumor, and then the rat died. And Henry 
instead of just getting rid of the rat or burying it or whatever, he actually made a little milk carton coffin for it and put it into the freezer. The part about melting on Biafra, I don't know. You don't have to ask Biafra about that. Jello Biafra, I was searching the internet. I'm sure you love questions that are preambled by that. And I found some website that had some story about how Henry Rollins melted a rat on you. Again, this is what happens when you exaggerate stuff on the net. I was crashing in his apartment one night when I went back down to D.C. with DOA after a dead Kennedy's East Coast tour in 81, and uh, he was still Henry Garfield then. And when I finally fell asleep as the sun was coming up, a roommate took Henry's uh, late pet rat, who was in a little milk carton coffin in the freezer that was still being mourned, and held the rat over me, and the water started to melt, so this rat was kind of dripping and drooling on me when I woke up. Now, when Henry Rollins quit Black Flag, did his hair end up on the wall of the Discord office? No. But you're getting different stories mixed up. Please correct me, Ian. On the wall in the office was Henry. was a mirror that Henry had smashed with his head. And we had a pieces of his mirror with blood all over it. And it was on a piece of cardboard that said, mirror that Henry schlonged his head on, plus blood. There was a bag of hair that belonged to me from, uh, at one point. But I got it because it sort of was disgusting after a while. Has Henry ever offered to Ian to get you into, like, showbiz or get you any acting parts or anything like that? No. Because I've seen Minor Threat popped up for a tiny bit there. What do you think about that in SLC Punk? You know that movie SLC yeah. Punk? There's a bit of Minor Threat in that movie. Yeah. Henry had nothing to do with that, though. How about yourself, though? Have you ever listened to the Jim Rome sports show? No. I was... know what it is. They, you, they play our music. Yeah, I thought that's pretty cool. Jim Rome. Jim Rome? Jim Rome the sportscaster. A lot of, you know, it's, you know... Uh, the Washington Redskins football team, on last year at least, apparently during like the third down, they had a they would play waiting room in the stadium. I didn't hear it myself. I was told that by many people though. Ian, what do you think about that Poison Idea record where it's Ian Mackay? I don't think it's what it's called. It's just called Ian Mackay, and the, the cover is a big spread asshole. I think that's what I don't think I think you're getting two different records mixed up again. But uh, what do I think about him? Oh, well, you know, it hurts my feelings. But I don't really care. Had you known those guys at all or done gigs no, with them? I don't know them, but you know, their point of view, this is a lot of people who sort of assail my name or image or whatever. Like their point of view is like there's people who consider him a god, so we're just trying to show that he's a human. But my position is is that you don't throw rocks at human beings. So if you're going to be cruel to me, then you're making me into something that's like apparently larger than life. So if they're going to they're going to be ugly about my name or ugly about me, then all they're doing is reinforcing the idea that I'm that I'm not a human being, that I am some weird god or something. I'm comfortable with myself as a human being. I don't know why they have to waste their time writing about me. But that's 12 years ago or 11 years ago. Let's get let's get topical here. Well, how about your pockets, Ian? Do you carry $5 bills in your pockets in case you have to kick somebody out and give them their money back? No, I don't. But if I need to uh, give, escort someone out of the room and give them their money back, I'm sure I can borrow the money from somebody in the room. But I wouldn't carry it in my pocket, no. I have done so in the past, but we don't have that many problems anymore. We don't really have to um, ask people to leave. You'd be surprised, though, if you just give one person's money back how much more enjoyable an evening can be. Because usually it's just one or two people that are causing most of the problems. Have you, ever, have you ever planted anybody in the audience, I mean, just for a joke, and pretended to kick them out just for fun? No. 
Did Allison of Bratmobile inadvertently chuck a tampon at you guys? You'll have to ask Allison about that. Do you remember the story at all, or perhaps what I'm alluding to? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, you'll still have to ask Allison about that. But what's your take on that story, Ian? My take is you'd have to ask Allison about that. How about your take on this story? Calvin Johnson glass ashtray. I didn't throw it. What happened there? Because it's kind of dangerous when you open for Fugazi, isn't it? No. Well, for, wasn't it for beat happening that night? They got, like, Calvin got a glass ashtray in his, like, forehead or something that like was, that? It was 1991. I mean, I mean, is it open? Is it dangerous to open Fugazi now? No, it's not. About... 1991, we were playing in Los Angeles. It was a different time, and people there were very aggressive. And when they were playing, uh, somebody threw an ashtray. It was not glass, however. It was plastic, but it was hard enough to split his nose open. And, uh, but he didn't miss a beat, because he immediately said, and you may actually get the reference, he said, somebody broke my nose, dumped the whole balcony, which is a reference. Do you know the reference? Oh, I'm so disappointed in you, Nardwar. Help me, Ian. Help me. Teach me, Ian. It's a Germs live album where Darby says, somebody just broke my nose, dumped the whole balcony. So in other words, someone hit him in the face and immediately quotes Darby, who, of course, is, you know, a quintessential L.A. punk rock guy. And I think that was one of the, you know, Beat Happening's first sort of L.A. punk rock experiences. Like, they played smaller shows, but I don't think they'd ever been in front of something like that. I mean, the crowds have been, you know, gone through quite a cycle like you know if you've been around like I've been involved with music for 21 years now so I've seen like this kind of scene kind of go through all sorts of weird uh, conniptions and that particular era was really was weird it was just, when we first started playing the music we played was so bizarre I think it's so funny people talk about like our last old record being so classic but when we first played Waiting Room at that time contextually like with the music that was being played People thought, what is this weird reggae crap? They hated that song. So it just goes to show that like there's always room for growth and change. And if you don't actually take advantage of that, you're you're just gonna keep beating on the same drum. Ian, how about some craziness though from promoting gigs and doing your own stuff? Like a stage collapsing on you in Phoenix and helicopters overhead. Do you remember that? Like didn't you go through the stage? I think yeah, I fell through the stage. It was a waterlogged stage. I was jumping up and down and you know, just went up to my knees and actually managed to cut my shins fairly severely. But meanwhile, there was a police helicopter going around with a spotlight on us and skinhead kids rioting out in the uh, street there. You just can't get away from the airplane circling around Ian Mackay here in Fugazi. Too when you're on a flight path, apparently. When the Teen Idols flew out to L.A. to do a gig, did you play with the mentors? We took a Greyhound bus out to L.A. We didn't fly. Sorry, I correct myself. I'm so disappointed with you. Uh, we played at the... Um, Hong Kong Cafe with Vox Pop, who ended up being 45 Grave, The Mentors, and a band called Puke Spittin' Guts. Um, we borrowed Vox Pop's bass amp. We borrowed Paul Cutler's bass. We actually flew, we took this Greyhound bus out there carrying a guitar, a bass, and a pair of drumsticks. We just assumed we'd be able to borrow equipment. We did actually end up borrowing equipment, but they were not pleased about it. And we were paid for that gig. $15? $15, that's absolutely right. And $11 at the gig in San Francisco. That's correct, at the Mabuhay Gardens. It's a new wave night. You know who we played with? We played with the Wrong Brothers there. That's new wave. Wrong Brothers instead of the Right Brothers, see? I was curious, how did San Francisco respond to, like, the speed and the aggression of the teen idols? Well, the night we played was a new wave night, so the actual response from the new wave crowd was one of disinterest. 
um, extreme decentralist, I might even say. But the night before, the show we were supposed to play on was with the Dead Kennedys, Flipper, and the Circle Jerks. Um, Dirk Dirksen, who was the uh, guy who ran the joint, the Mugway Gardens, had just dropped us from the bill because he didn't like the po He asked us for a photo. We sent him a fucking photo. I'm oh, sorry. We sent him a photo. And uh, he just... Uh, said, oh, the dumb photo. And he just dropped us from the bill without telling us. So we'd taken a bus all the way out there for two shows, and we got to the one show, and it was gone. So he felt so bad that he put us on the next night, which was a like new wave night. But a lot of the kids we met, primarily HB kids from L.A., like the Huntington Beach punk rock kids, who came up with the Circle Jerks, came out to the gig. And they were, they were, they seemed to like it. What were the mentors like? Did they help prepare you for working with Tesco V? They, no, they were just kind of, um, they were pretty scary guys. They were big with hoods on. Nell Duce, I remember, carried his SVT uh, cabinet by himself, like, which is, that's a heavy amp, or heavy cabinet. Um, they were, they were kind of weird. I mean, it was all weird. I mean, we were so overwhelmed by the whole experience that the whole thing was just strange. Tesco, uh, on the other hand, I knew as a person. I didn't know him as a character. Ian, HR of Bad Brains, when they started out, was he a pre-med student? So I've read. I didn't know that until it was just recently written about in a book. And what was HR like? Did he ever, like, give any homophobia towards you at all? No. Not to me. HR was the energizer. He was really passionate about what he did. He was a visionary. He really got a lot of us kids thinking like we can do anything he was really full of like great ideas and like was always the one who said go like bad Brains always started their set with are you ready that was the way and it said they were they were a complete inspiration of a band so i knew him on that level when he became a rasta things became more distant and all this uh, the homophobic stuff all that stuff kind of came up later on and that but at that point i didn't really barely know him anymore and now if I see him, like, of course, you know, we would say hi, but we haven't been able to actually have a conversation in, you know, 12 years. Ian, I have some really great practice tapes with about seven minutes of music and about 83 minutes of arguing. Ian Mackay. By which band? I don't know. That was a quote that you said. Oh, yeah. What do you want to know? <laughs> I was curious. What did you mean by that? Well, they're my third practice tapes. But we just argued all the time. That band argued. People say, why'd you break up? We said, because we were sick of each other. We just argued all the time. We were kids. I mean, Brian was 14 or 15. Lyle was 16. I was 18 or 19. You know, and we were struggling, trying to figure out how to live and how to grow up, you know. And that was a, uh, that band was full of fire. So we have, we had intense arguments. And actually, one of these days I'm going to do... I may well try to do a, a record of just the arguments because they're so classic. Like Thurston Moore did that for Venom, didn't he? he did this Venom oh, stage banter. I never heard that. I'd like to hear that someday. They're arguing, there's one argument we have about whether, how much you charge for the out-of-step record. I wanted to charge $3.50. I thought, two fifty for a single, make this a 12-inch, make it three fifty. bam. Be nice, but we end up having an argument for like half an hour about that. Well, speaking about arguments and stuff, Ian, when was the last time you got in a true blue fist fight? How do you define true blue fist fight? Well, just one, like, real full-on fist fight. Just like, it's like James Dean. I think in 1984 or 1985, I had been in a hospital where I had a shoulder problem that they thought was cancer but it wasn't it was undiagnosed pain 
And I came out of the hospital, I had a biopsy on this shoulder. I came out of the hospital and I went to go see the Minutemen play. Right spring open for the Minutemen. Brendan had been in a car accident and had his arm in a sling. So they had to do an acoustic set because he couldn't actually drum. He just had to play a standing up snare or a percussion type thing. And during that Minutemen show, a guy punched my brother, Alec. And I think I hit him with a right, but my arm was so sore. And it just reminded me that it was such an intensely painful experience that it reminded me again that I was done fighting for good. And I did not fight again. I mean, I've had, I've had moments of like altercation, not, not fights like in the sense of like, there was like an argument that went into a fight, more like somebody pushed me or someone, you know, you know, did something where I kind of went, you know, pushed him back or something. But I don't fight. I don't, I think it's a, as a, as a form of communication, it's a bankrupt form of communication. There was a rumor in the fancy butterfly juice that you once hit a kid in the head with a hammer. That's not true. That's a, a mutation of a story about when I was in high school, there was a kid named Josh, uh... Josh Freeze at the Vandals. No. Because he's from Los Angeles, I'm from Washington, D.C. Okay, that was just throwing a joke out. Oh, okay. Uh, I can't think of Josh, Josh Weiner. We were in a theater production together called the Wilson Players. It was like a community theater that actually was in this school. And I was building a flat. You know what a flat is? A house. A flat of beer. No, a flat would be this thing that you put up around the stage to kind of backdrop the scenery, the set. So you build a flat, you just take... You build frames, and then you stretch out, you take some fabric and stretch out, and you paint the fabric to make it look like the walls. So I was on my hands and knees, I was squatting down, banging, nailing together a flat, a frame for a flat. And a bunch of kids were smoking dope in there, which was pretty normal at that time. It was 1979 or maybe 1980. 79, 78 or 79, I guess. And I was just building this flat. They were all skidding high in the corner. And Josh came over and tapped me on the shoulder, and I stood up and was like, what's up? And he was about, you know, this far, and he blew pot smoke in my face, which just was insane. So I took a step back and threw the hammer at him. I hit him in the knee. I didn't hit him in the head, though. But it was not in the sense I was trying to break his knee. It was that I was having a reaction to being sort of assaulted. I felt like I had been assaulted. I don't appreciate that. I, I was minding my business. He was a bully. Do you understand that? Yes, I do, Ian. Okay. I wouldn't hit somebody in the head with a hammer. I'm not a malicious person. Ian, winding up here with Ian from the rock and roll band Fugazi and Where did you hear that British show? Oh, yeah, Canada. Butter, Butterfield. What was it called? Butterfly? Butterfly Juice. Butterfly Juice, juice oh, fanzine. Yeah. When SSD Control came down to New York, they brought a lot of their crew with them. And then there was the New York crew. There was the Boston crew fighting. Who do you think won versus the two crews? Was I there? I was just curious what your take on that was, like the intense loyalty, you know, the Boston crew versus the New York crew. What is your question? Like, what was the take, what's your take on that, the crews, the two crews fighting? You know, like, Boston goes down to New York, and the New York crew is there, and it was like a big slam pit, and some of the kids from Boston had giant X's on their forehead, so they knew who was on their team. Hmm. Where'd you hear that from? What's your source on this stuff? This is a friend of mine named Jonas told me this. Yeah, X's on their forehead. Well... The early punk rock, things were very regional. People came from, there was kids from Philadelphia, kids from Boston, kids from New York, kids from D.C., kids from Richmond, kids from Detroit, kids from Atlanta. So you just would run in. But people, 
because you know they're kids and part of being a punk rocker is being marginalized feeling marginalized and looking for a family to belong to them and because it was an era where there was so much sort of animosity coming towards kids who were punk rockers they started to form fairly tight cells their families so when they moved they went to other places they would run into other people who were like also in their own kind of families um, so I don't know like I know Boston had a crew of people I know those kids from New York I know those kids from Washington I knew there was a lot of there's a lot of friction but not everybody from Boston hated everybody from New York and everybody from Washington hated people from New York it was sort of like just, you just knocked heads. As far as like Boston and New York and a slam pit with X's in the heads, that sounds like a big cartoon to me. I don't even know what you're talking about. But sure, there was times where people had disagreements or whatever. But who would have won? Who gives? Who cares? Ian, how come you never got a tattoo? Before you answer that question, you've got two questions left. Thank you. Have you seen the filth and the fury? Yes. How would you compare that to instrument? And you guys played with Pill at one time, and have you met Johnny Rotten? Um, he didn't speak with me, so I didn't meet him, I guess. My threat did open for PIL, uh, 19, uh, October 31st, 1982, Virtue Coliseum. They, uh, we came off stage, we played for a pizza and a case of Coca-Cola. That was our payment that night. Um, and I think they came in, when we came off stage, they pulled up in a limousine after us, so it was sort of a two ships passing the night. Uh, and I don't really compare instrument to Filth and the Fury. I didn't. I never bothered comparing it. Did you? No, I was just curious no, if you I, thought about any comparison between the two. No, I didn't think about it. How did you guys get on top of the Capitol building with Bikini Kill? We're not on top of the Capitol building. Well, there was some big concert there. It seemed pretty well in front of the Capitol buildings or whatever American word is. <laughs> what is an American word? What does that mean? I don't know. American explanation. Park buildings, capital. We don't have words like that in Canada, Ian. We have like parliament, democracy. What is your question? Bikini Kill. Did you do a gig with Bikini Kill? Fugazi and Bikini Kill played Freedom Plaza. Well, not Freedom Plaza. It was, um, what was that place called? It was out front of the Supreme Court. It was a, a park about three blocks to the north of the U.S. Capitol which is the home of the U.S. government, which I guess is not a parliamentary system. Um, so I'm sorry about that. You seem put out by that. But the... Uh, I was just joking. Yeah. Um, but we just play... Yeah. It, thing is, Washington is largely... There's a lot of federal land there. And if you make... As for a permit, you can use those... You can't really have concerts there, but you can have demonstrations. But because our, our concerts tend to be, we have themes about them usually, they're considered demonstrations, so we're able to pull off a lot of that kind of stuff. Conversely, um, there are some places where you can't have demonstrations, you can only have concerts. So this depends on where you go. For instance, the Lafayette Park, which is right in front of the White House, we wanted to have, put a concert on there, and this is 1988 or so, and we just wanted to have like a, celebra like a May Day celebration kind of concert. They wouldn't let us have one because it was not a demonstration. So then we decided, okay, we'll have a demonstration uh, in, uh, about um, education of birth, of, uh, of teenage birth, uh, pregnancies. People like made a kind of spring. And they said, yeah, no problem. All I had to do is come up with some, something. It's just, it's arcane and it's bureaucratic. And that's the U.S. government. That's all governments, probably. Thank you very much, Ian Mackay. Really appreciate your time. Keep on rocking in the free world and doot-doot-doot-doot. Nice to see you again, Nodawar. Please, Ian. Doot-doot-doot-doot. <laughs> Take care. That was rhythmic.
an interview with Ian Mackay from 2001 at Bill Copeland Sports Arena near the archery exhibit or where the archery takes place at Bill Copeland Sports Arena was done with Ian Mackay in the year 2001. Right now, here is an interview with Daniel Johnston, who will be returning to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, from the year 2009, done at the Comic Shop. Who are you? I don't know. It's hard to tell. You are Daniel? Yeah, I've heard that. That must be me. Daniel Johnson. That's right. Welcome to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Daniel Johnson. Good. Thank you very much. I have a gift for you right off the bat from the Vancouver band Cub. Here it is, their 7-inch Betty Cola. Oh, that looks good. That looks pretty good. With cover art by Dan DiCarlo. Oh, no kidding. That is cool. He's great. I love those. I buy Archie comics a lot. Those girls look so foxy. I always buy them. And you know what's really and you know what's really amazing about it? They actually cover, and I got another gift for you. This is on their CD. They cover Tell Me Now. All right. By Daniel Johnson. About that. This is great. And they're from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. What do you think about that? Getting Dan DiCarlo. Yeah, yeah, he's cool. I mean, those girls look like real foxes, babes on that. Archie's uh, comics. And they have some great lyrics. Draw girls. So. They have some great lyrics too, Daniel. One of them is, Satan sucks, but you're the best. Oh my. That's their lyrics. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, hmm. That's a Vancouver, BC, Canada lyric. Yeah, okay. And here we are in Vancouver, home of Boris Karloff. Hmm? No, he grew I, up here. I think I met him one night. We were at a pizza shop and, and I left the slice and he was looking at the slice on the uh, table and I said, are you Boris Karloff? But it couldn't have been, you know, he's been dead for so long, I guess, but it seemed like it was really him. It was weird. He did work in Vancouver at the Pacific National Exhibition. As what else happened. Uh, I was doing a show the other night and Elvis Costello came out and sang a song with us. No way! It really happened. It was great. I was actually emailing his manager and telling him to do that. <coughs> That's great. Well, thank you. When did that happen? How many nights ago? Uh, two or three nights ago. Oh, that's incredible. We'll have to get the footage and cut to that then. That would be cool. We, we were eating, we were traveling and everything, and there was just this guy always sitting at the restaurant, you know? And about the third day, I took a look at him. I said, hey, that's Elvis Costello. I didn't realize. You know? You've said that Elvis Costello has been in your band, haven't you, a few times. You've joked about that. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, I don't remember that. But, but back to Boris Karloff. He worked at the Pacific National Exhibition, and I have another gift for you. And check this out. This is the Beatles playing in Vancouver. That is so cool. Thanks so much. That's on my wall. Playing where? At Empire Stadium in Vancouver. Oh, that is so cool. Boris Karloff worked at the P&E. Brothers, Jackie, uh, the ex- <laughs> Okay. No, it doesn't stop there, Daniel Johnson. I have another gift for you, another P&E Vancouver gift. Okay. Check this out. We have here a record of Beatles interviews. Are you at the Beatles interview? I sure am. I collect Beatles. Well, that Beatles interviews. Out today. Now, check this out, Daniel Johnson. It is Beatles interviews in Seattle and Vancouver. Seattle and Vancouver, specific Beatles interviews. Yeah, that's Some great. local content. Yeah. I guess that's what I was wondering about. I was looking at the devil and Daniel Johnson, and I saw this record on your Christmas tree, Ed Rudy. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. You can tell the people about hanging Ed Rudy on your Christmas tree. This is like a spoken word record, the spoken word Beatles thing. Freaky Christmas that, that year. So 
That's, can I have this too? Uh, that maybe isn't quite for you. In there. Some of the interviews are actually on the CD. That'll be cool. You can actually check out. And that's what I want to ask you about. What do you think, Daniel Johnson, about records like this? Oh, it's not the Beatles, is it? I, I understand that, but they're, it's collectible. I have some, a lot of Beatles sound like records and I collect them. That's the Liverpool. So, so have you been fooled ever thinking it is the Beatles? Well, uh, not really. But they, I, like, like they had just a little bit more hair when the Beatles. It was funny because you know, it's it like they get a bunch of session men in for you know Beatlemania or they call it something. That's cool. And what's interesting is you on your new LP have a real connection to the Beatles, don't you, Jason Faulkner? Because he worked with Paul McCartney. Oh, that is unreal. He he had. Uh, uh, recorded recently with Paul McCartney or something. When he went in the studio, I laid down a lot of basic tracks, and he has a real Beatle feel to the music. So it's going to be. He worked with Paul. He worked with Paul McCartney. Is there any chance he could have got Paul McCartney to work on your album, Daniel Johnson? He would have told me if that happens, but I'm honestly missing by a few days. But did you once leave a whole bunch of tapes for Yoko Ono? Yeah, I went to Yoko's house and uh, no reply. <laughs> you left some tapes? Sure, I did. You know, shirts and stuff. Now, this Guitar Hero thing that's happening, Kurt Cobain wearing a Daniel Johnson shirt in Guitar Hero. What do you think about that? Did you get any cyber royalties for that? Well, you know, about, about that title, da Daniel and the Devil. Yeah. What is The Devil and Daniel? Man, that's hardcore. That'll, that's, that's got me tattooed for the rest of my life. It couldn't be worse, you know? How about the Guitar Hero video game? You know, the Guitar Hero video game has... They're starting a video game with the uh, characters that I draw and stuff. Well, the Guitar Hero one has Kurt wearing your T-shirt, and Kurt in that video game sings some Bon Jovi. Oh, cool. Kurt, uh, Star Trek sings Bon Jovi? Yes, some Bon Jovi on the Guitar Hero. That sounds great. And if you just step up here for a second, Daniel. Yeah. All right. You see down there, actually. I'm looking for some lunch magazines. So go ahead. I'll still interview you. I'm just looking for, uh, they have, see if you have any monster magazines. I guess they don't. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for interviewing me. And well, uh, I've got a couple more questions. And actually, we have something to be able to help you out. We have Cliff over here. Cliff is your number one fan in Vancouver. Come over here, Cliff, right? Hey, Daniel. And he wondered if you could trade some comics for some gig tickets tonight. We got a Action Comics number 269. Identity has been betrayed by Black Magic. Poor that? Superman. That's yeah, for you. Complete run of Black Goliath, issues uh, one through two. That is great. The party's over punks. There's a new yeah. superhero in town. Yeah. For you. Not quite a monster magazine, but a monster yeah, comic. How about that? That's a great cover. Who did that cover? I'm not sure. Bruce Buckler. These are all gifts from Cliff. <laughs> right. <laughs> for gig tickets. There's some Jack Kirby inside this monster comic, Monsters on the Prowl. That is cool. That is cool. And for you? Sort of well, how many tickets do you want? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> how many tickets do you need? Uh, four, but... Uh, <laughs> well, tell my brother there. Tell my brother, and he'll write your name down and, and let you know at the door. Oh, amazing. Very much. And the House of Secrets, uh, sort right. of a horror. Ice cream cone gone bad. And, right. the, and the final one, Archie in yeah, Vancouver at Expo 86. Yeah, the Archie's playing in Vancouver on stage. Oh, hey. We'll have to book more Canadian concerts. <laughs> Shouldn't we be singing in French? All done by Dan DiCarlo. Hey, do you speak more English now instead of French here? Or? It's 50-50. And one last one, Cliff, you have. A special one. Check this out, Daniel. Oh, that is nice. Veronica in Canada, wow, city hopping. Cool. Toronto, Vancouver, Halifax, Quebec City on tour like you. 
No, Cliff is giving this to you and a whole bunch of other comics as well. And I want to ask you, Cliff, you love smelling comics, don't you? I like the smell of comics, yeah. You like the smell of comics, Daniel? You know, when I'm looking at comic books and like I look at some old comic books, like the glue that they used or something, I smell it too. I'm thinking and it takes me back over the years when I was a kid and I bought the same comics. And say, well, this is like, it's still got the feeling of that era. We still have some more comics for tickets, don't we? A whole bunch more, don't you, Cliff? All of this. We'll give it to you. Well, I, I, let, me, let me see here for a minute. These are all gifts for you, Daniel Johnson, from Cliff in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Okay, all right. Now, you also love tapes, don't you, Daniel? Yeah, uh, yeah I, I, get, uh, I get a lot of demo tapes people send me. It's pretty funny. I'll, I'll put them on a lot and just listen to them while I'm eating or something. What's the best brand of tape? Because I noticed in your movie there were tons and tons of different brands. What's the best brand? Centron was really the best one. Uh, Yip Jump Music was recorded on Centron. Because it was Avanti too. There was Avanti. There was Sertron, Astrosonic. Right, yeah, but Chrome is one of the uh, most dangerous uh, tapes to use. You could die on it. Have you had some experiences with that? No, but I I heard um, Leonard Skinner, Leonard, Paul McCartney, and Leonard Skinner, Skinner was having some trouble when I heard it because it making noise and you know, and it seems to make scratches on it too easy. Daniel, do you have any tips if somebody wants to tape somebody secretly? You did a lot of secret taping, didn't you? What are some tips for that? Well, I, I used to be like a um, multimedia artist is what I call myself. You know, I'd take a tape recorder around and record all my friends, and you know, some of that ended up on Songs of Pain. What about for taping somebody? Where do you hide the tape deck? Like, what were you using? Carry it around. I didn't have a, you know, just a regular, I'd just be carrying everything. You know, they, they got used, everybody got used to it, so, you know. <laughs> Daniel, you also worked at Astroworld. That's right. That place looked incredible, but now it's gone? Of no return. I don't know why they closed down. It was a big, really cool place, you know. Alpine Slate, it was like the Alpine Slate? Mm-hmm. And it had like an echo chamber in it, it got really cold? What was Astroworld like? Like you saw a flock of seagulls there? You saw some... Flock of seagulls. I played football with them before the show, even. Played football with flock of seagulls. What an image that is! Yeah. <laughs> were they any good? Oh, they were great. They had that, and I ran, I ran so far away. Now, from football with flock of seagulls to working in an oil refinery with a girl. What was that like working at the oil refinery with a girl? Well, there were girls at the oil refinery, so I made it kind of fun through the day to joke around and stuff. But like the other day when I tried, when you know, you can't arrest girls too much. Like I, I've been gotten in trouble a few times with the stewardesses, and uh, you know, so I don't, I, I leave the girls alone. I don't bother them as much. <laughs> I used to just, you know, have them f have fun with the stewardess, you know. Can you get me another drink? I have no, you know, something like that. Daniel Johnson, your artwork, is it still in your high school? Is it on the walls of your high school still? Oh, I don't know about that, but I'm in the yearbook and stuff, and I painted a bear. It took me all year to paint. They wanted me to paint this bear. bear from our symbol was the bear, you know. And uh, I painted it. It took me, like, all year, and I just didn't go to classes and everything. And next year, they paint it over it. <laughs> so maybe if they go under the paint, they'll be able to find it. Right, right. What was the first punk band that you saw, Daniel Johnson? Well, I saw The Clash. I saw Elvis Costello in the day. You know, some good shows there in Pittsburgh. 
Now, I was wondering, Daniel Johnson, what role did this gentleman have here in your life? Here we have Mr. Kim Fowley. All right, this is cool. I I never uh, he wanted to do a record with me, you know, and I told him sorry. I said uh, yeah, you know, and so he wanted to see what I sound like in, in the studio that I could do some studio recording. <coughs> and when I did, I thought to myself, I say, hey, I'll go ahead and record an album. <laughs> so it was continued story was the album, but I never really met him. But he had a letter for me about. I'd like to work with him someday, you know, very famous Joan Jett and Cherry Bomb, songs like that. All right. Also, I was wondering, Daniel Johnson, you have a song about record recording on your new LP, don't you? About records, record stores. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. What's that song about? Well, it's about uh, fake music. <laughs> From music, Daniel Johnson. On eBay recently, right. there was a test pressing, a Daniel Johnson Jad Fair test pressing for $5,000. Oh, man, that is unreal. Do you have any of those you could put on eBay? I really enjoyed that first album me and him did. We, uh, we do plan to get together again sometime. Daniel Johnson, you were on MTV, Cutting Edge. One person that doesn't get a lot of credit was the host of the show. What can you tell the people about Peter Zaremba from the Flesh Tones? He was the host. Do you remember him? That's right. Yeah, he was so cool. The flesh, I love the Flesh Tones. He got me on the show. I just showed up. They were having a lunch, you know, and we were all eating tacos, and I was, like, talking to him and holding up my tape to the camera and everything. Smooth sailing. I was famous. MTV. People talk about MTV, but the Flesh Tones. At the time. But it goes back to the Flesh Tones. Peter Zaremba. Yeah, th I, I really like the music. I've heard them before, a, a bit of them. Do I get to have this? Probably not. Yes, that's for you. Thanks. I appreciate it. That'd be great. Daniel Johnson, at one time, did you almost have Lou Reed on one of your records? Well, that's another one. Just uh, br uh, almost a brush with greatness. He was there a couple days in between I was recording, so you know, I missed him. But Mojo, M Mo Tuck Tucker was there, and we wrote a song for him. Me and Jad wrote a song for him. But you almost had Mo Tucker and Lou Reed on a Daniel Johnson record. It would have been cool. But you did have Willie Nelson's sister on one of your records. Yeah, that's true. Willie Nelson's sister. It's true. It's true. Hey, do you have some more comics for me? Uh, yeah. That's the last bit of comics for more free tickets for the gig tonight. All right. How, how many? Uh, how many? Are, are you want to go tonight? Sure. Okay. So how about I'll give you ten credit for ten. That's very generous of you, Daniel Johnson. What do we have here? We have a whole bunch of Jimmy Olsen, Cub reporter, of course, for the Cub musician, Daniel Johnson. This is cool. The special gamma weapon, Jimmy Olsen. Jimmy Olsen, wrestling oh. Viking. All right. Batman versus a skeleton. Yeah, that's great. Superman with no face, Batman with no face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Do you have any of these at all? All right. Huh? Do you have any of these? No, I don't. These are, this is these are just the kind of comments I collect. Thank you very much, yeah, sir. No problem. Uh, no do you want more than 10? No, that's good. That's good. Uh, that's sure. amazing. I uh, sure thank you very much. And also, we have a gentleman here with you, Brett. Could we yeah. bring over Brett for a moment to do a song for us? You said you could do a song for us. Yeah, yeah we can. I wanted you to do the song Tell Me Now, but you haven't been doing that recently, have you? Uh, that would be in honor of the band Cub. Tell me now. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really remember it. This, oh, and welcome back, Carter. All right. <laughs> the Bible says never turn down a precious gift. So thanks. Daniel, here we are with Brett. Hi, Brad. Hi, Daniel. <laughs> and you got a tune for us. You sure do. This is an old song from Songs of Pain era.
If I had my own way, you'd be with me here today. But I rarely have my own way. I guess that's why you're not here with me today. And the librarian said, you can't buy no respect. I said, hey, lady, what can you expect when I'm lying on the floor? Well, you're a lovely lady, but you don't want to be no girl of mine. Well, the only thing you ever done for me was help me waste my time. And I saw you at the funeral. You were standing there like a temple. I said, hi, how are you? Hello. And I pulled up a casket and called in. Yes, I did. Climbed up a mountain and I looked around. Some kind of circus with all them clowns. I said, hey, wait a minute, can't we slow down a bit? And I almost got hit by a truck. Well, it just goes to show you that we're all on our own, scrounging for our own share of good luck. Stab your brother in the back and pick up your paycheck. Goodbye, lonely heart drawing. You never did work anyhow. I'm looking for a nice girl and I don't want no cow. I'm heading out west. Gonna find me the best. Well, I played the game, but I failed the test. If I can't be a lover, then I'll be a pest. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you very much. Daniel Johnson, live at the comic shop. How about it? How about it? Live at the comic shop in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. You know it. With bread as well. Yeah. Thank you very much for having us. A friend from my college. We went to college together. Well, anything else you want to add to the people out there at all, Daniel Johnson? Hmm. I don't know. Anything to add to the people? Uh, they should say power to the people, right? I don't know. Right on. Yeah. Right, power. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Daniel and Brett. Keep on rocking in the free world and do do the loot do. Yeah. Uh, cat me and do. Almost do do the loot do. Oh, do do. Yeah. Right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, I, I really did pretty well with all this loot. Okay. I want to win. Freedom talks of freedom. I'm just a whim. I'm so trapped in boredom. I touch the shore. How can I get there to go away? Just to 
An interview with Daniel Johnson from the comic shop from 2009 in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Now we head up to the Pemberton Music Fest in 2008 for an interview with J.C. Yeah, Pharrell was you come highly recommended. Oh, well, thank you. Well, it's an honor to speak to you. Calling a hundred times. Sorry about that. I've never, I've never understood. This. I didn't really understand it at first. It was like, you calling me to do an interview? What the yeah. fuck is that? What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he just said your really? knowledge is, is extensive, and he knows that I appreciate people that no matter what, what, what you do, whether whether you paint, you paint uh, art, or you make records, or you do interviews, or you're a writer, if you are really truly good, good at your craft, and you're good, he he knows I'm excited by that type of shit. So he really. He wanted me to meet you, so, so here th- we are. Thank you, Pharrell. Don't, dis- don't disappoint him. Pharrell, thanks so much for making this happen. Here's my interview with Jay-Z. Who are you? Who am I? I'm a, I'm a young man from Aussie Projects who uh, really made um, the thing that, that thing that they say Amer- the American dream come true because I w- I'm not supposed to be here speaking to you. You know, there's a lot of people that come from where I come. There's a lot of skilled people who come from where I come who are who are not here right now. Yeah. You are Jay-Z. Oh, I, I thought you meant, like, who am I? I thought you were, I thought it was a deeper question. I think my name is Jay-Z, yes. <laughs> Jay-Z, welcome to the Pemberton Festival. Thank you, thank you. Right off the bat, speaking of going back to the early days of Jay-Z, what can you tell me, Jay-Z, about jazz and the early appearance of a young Jay-Z right there? Uh, to be very honest with you, you know, if you look at the, this is not your typical rapper right here. You know, this is this is not even my album. This is actually Jazz's album. But if you look on the back of this thing, um, these the cable rope and the four finger ring. You know, that was that cable was mine. That that Cobra was a friend of mine. His name was DeHaven. That was mine. That was mine. This anchor was mine. All that was my jewelry because I was a street guy. So you you never come into a game and already have all this type of, of thing. So I was an artist who come, you know, come highly recommended from the street. A real guy from the street. Is that your stuff on the front too, Jay, with the panther? That's amazing. No, that's jazz. That's that, that's no, that's not mine. But that that piece, if you look at it, look look, the piece is on him. Me is on him in the front. You know so. But he's, he, was that your first appearance on Wax, Jay-Z? No, actually, I was. my first appearance on Wax was a song called uh, HP Gets Busy, High Potent MCs. It was like me, Jazz, and two other guys from the Marcy Projects. Jay-Z, I have another gift for you, although you probably already have a copy of that record. This poster right here, done by Cake and McLeod, a Canadian, featuring... I never seen this shit in my life. What is it? And you are represented right down here. Can you find yourself, Jay-Z? Right there, right there. I know who I am. Right next to Akinelli and Exhibit. 
What do you think about this poster repping all the hip hoppers that are favorites of Keegan McLeod? This is a Canadian gift for you. Can I have it? Yeah, that's for you. Oh, fuck. And also, check it out, Jay-Z, <laughs> on the back. Look at all. It gives a little description of everybody. Oh, almost like, uh... What do you think about the people that you've been grouped with here? I, I mean, anybody that I'm grouped with, I mean... Oh, excuse me. I'm a supporter of hip-hop, so, you know, I support all these people. No, that's great. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Jay-Z, when I interviewed Questlove of The Roots, he told me that for you to memorize something, you had to do it 18 times? Well, yeah, maybe, yeah. Repetition, you know, repetition. That, I mean, basketball players, that's why they practice every day still. They've been playing basketball their whole life, but they practice every day because, you know, repetition. The, the coolest thing about Jay-Z is that, A, he's not lazy. That rhymes. That's crazy. No, he's not he's not lazy. And um I told him if you want to know all these songs, studies say that if you repeat anything 18 times in a row, it will instantly get committed to memory. So first he was like, "Oh man, I'll just do it like 6 times or whatever." No, but then he would forget certain things. I said, "Look, dude, if you do it 18 times in a row, it will be straight." So we did a little schedule for like 9 days before Four songs a day, you know, three-hour rehearsal, take a break. Three-hour rehearsal, take a break. And then that's how he committed to memory. Is that the magic number, 18? Well, yeah, well, nah, I don't know if 18's the number, but, you know. <laughs> how about 99? Is that the magic number, Jay-Z? Well, 99 problems, you know, that's, that, that's pretty much. And what I was wondering was, did that song originally come from Brother Marquis or Ice-T, Jay-Z? Yeah, that, that actually, was it Marquis or Ice-T? I thought it was Ice-T, yeah. So Ice-T and Brother Marquis helped with the 99 problems? Well, they helped. They invented it, you know. Well, I just well, I just followed tradition. Ice-T, one other thing I was wondering about was 99 problems. Yeah. What's the history of that song? That's your song. Jay-Z took it. And now apparently there's some links to Two Live Crew? What happened was, the true story is, uh, Brother Marquise made that comment one time. I was with him and he was like, you know, I got 99 problems and the bitch ain't one. So I thought, I was like, man, we can make a record off of that. So we called Marquise up, flew him out to L.A. We, me and him did the record together, paid him, everything was cool. And uh, that was that. Uh, years later, Jay-Z hears the record from Rick Rubin, decides he wants to remake it, makes, remakes the hook and does it. Then Marquise comes back and here Jay-Z did it and decides he wants more money, but all the money was already paid out. Uh, I didn't get any publishing from it because I had a publishing deal at the time. So he decides, you know, he wanted to sue me and all kinds of nasty stuff, which friends shouldn't do to each other. But that's the true story. So nothing's happened since then. You know, it's kind of water under the bridge. But, you know, the first 99 Problems was done by myself and brother Marquise from Two Live Crew. Lastly here, Jay-Z, here you are at the Pemberton Festival. At the Glastonbury Festival, you covered some Oasis. Yeah. Are you going to be covering any Canadian classics? Are you down with the Canadian classics? Well, well, you know, I didn't really have any problems with the Canadians. You know, the Glastonbury thing was a great thing because it was uh, this huge... Uh, it wasn't really a backlash. It was it was just, you know, a couple of people stating their opinion, opinion of, you know, who they thought should play Glastonbury. And Noel was actually vocal about it. So it just happens, you know. But do you, do you have cool. any Canadian classics like Mike Still Fresh West, Cardinal? Any covers you can do? Any Canadian songs? No, I, no I'm just going to do my set. It's, you know, just go out and have fun. Well, thanks for your time, Jay-Z. Anything Thank else you, you want to add to the people out there at all? You know, just, uh, 
you know, we appreciate, you know, being here and we, 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 we love the opportunity. And if you guys could help out, like the, the whole Canadian culture, tell the guys at the, uh, at the um, customs to ease up a little bit, seriously. Well, thanks much, Jay-Z. Uh, Keep on rocking in the free world and do, 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 do. Yeah. Uh, almost, Jay-Z. <laughs> do, 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 do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah! <laughs> An interview with Jay-Z from the year 2008 at the Pemberton Music Festival. Right now, to end the Nardwar the Human Serviette radio show, I thought I would play The Amazing World of Shortwave Listening, a record for you to check out. And actually, if you want to check out the records I'm playing, follow Nardwar on Twitter at Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R, because I am tweeting out pictures of the actual records I am playing. Here is the amazing world of shortwave listening on the Narwar, the human serviette radio show. This is the sound of adventure, and I am Alex Dreyer, your man on the go, here to escort you on a most unusual trip around the fabulous, fantastic world of shortwave radio. Through the facilities and cooperation of the Hallicrafters Company, world's most respected name in communications, this limited edition recording will bring you a new dimension in history, in current events, in excitement and drama, the likes of which you may never before have experienced. So please turn on your imaginary shortwave set and join me now as we scan the bands for the voices of adventure, new words and new sounds. From outer space to little America. From aircraft pilot to rock and roll. From a fishing boat captain to genuine Italian opera. Every sound authentically reproduced directly from actual shortwave broadcasts you might have heard in your own living room on a Hallicrafter's shortwave receiver. For instance, here is an event that made the front pages of newspapers all over America last year, the dramatic capture of a desperate criminal named Richard Carpenter, who had shot a policeman in Chicago, Illinois. Through a sixth sense, known only to the best of newsmen, the field reporter literally was on the firing line with police during the capture, relaying the entire proceeding with a mobile shortwave transmitter. Listen closely now, and you'll hear the actual gunfire and the excitement that follows. Those were the shots in front of 2048 Potomac. They have him up there now. The police are all crowded behind the cars. You can hear them firing at him now. Is he on the roof or is he in the building? He's in the third floor of the building. Is it Carpenter? It's Carpenter. Time is 11 minutes after 9. They've got him. They've got him. They're bringing him out now. They're taking him out now. Get out of the way, will you? Get out of the way. There's a terrific crowd around. 
Of course, incidents like that don't occur on shortwave every night, thank goodness. On the other hand, you can tune in on the regular police broadcasts, and they make pretty exciting listening. You've heard it said that the only way to learn a foreign language is to live in a foreign country. Well, maybe so. But if someone in your family is a language student, the next best thing is shortwave radio. Twist the dial a few times any night, and a linguistic paradise is yours. In fact, every language spoken by man. Spanish. Voy a cantar el himno que rica bendición. Magnífico, Loida. Es un himno muy adecuado para cantarlo en este programa. French. German. And if you want a new twist on American jazz music, you might tune in your helicopter's receiver to something like this. Whether time is critical to your business or you're merely fussy about details, Shortwave will bring you the National Bureau of Standards WWB exact time report periodically, 24 hours a day. National Bureau of Standards WWB. When the tone returns, Eastern Standard Time is 8.55 p.m. Everywhere we turn, we read about this modern air age of ours that thrives on a pace we earthlings can scarcely imagine. But with a helicopter's shortwave receiver, it's a simple matter to get in tune, so to speak, with the men who live in the stratosphere, the pilots, and the tower control men who guide them. And here's just a sample. And here are some voices that were heard literally around the world not long ago when a group of radio amateurs aboard a globe-circling military plane talked to hundreds of amateur stations during Operation Worldwide. W80LJ Aeronautical Mobile, QRZ, this is Operation Worldwide. Around the world flight on military air transport plane C-54, 50564, calling CQ, calling CQ, calling CQ. Earth again, down on the Gulf Coast, even a landlubber like me gets advance notice when the tuna fleet is coming home, if the wind's in the right direction. 
Fortunately, the canneries have much more accurate data, thanks to the modern miracle of powerful shortwave radio telephones aboard the boats. Most every night, you can pick up conversations like this. I'm trying to do that. I mean, you could probably get a piece of inch and get it in there, and then you'd have to weld it pretty tight on the end of your drum to hold it to keep it from rattling around in there. Fortunately for mankind, the sort of language you'll hear next is spoken infrequently, and America will not forget that it was spoken even once. On the 2nd of September, 1958, Soviet jet fighters over Armenia shot down in cold blood an unarmed U.S. military transport plane apparently having lured it over the border with fake radio beams. Its fate might never have been known except for the alertness of shortwave monitors who actually tape-recorded the voices of Russian flyers taking part in the slaughter. Listen and remember. And if you're tired of westerns on TV, try the shortwave bands any evening for a different kind of live dramatic fare, direct from Laos or Lucerne or London. How many times have you seen Morrison and the deceased man talk together? I did not take notice exactly, but two weeks before the crime, he was too much friendly with him. I saw him every night when I came from my work. You gave evidence at the police court? Yes. Did you say this? I, uh... I had known the prisoner about two months. He was friendly with Baron about two weeks before he was murdered. I have seen them a couple of times talking together. Is that correct? In the United States alone, there are more than 185,000 amateur radio stations. They are operated by doctors, scientists, mechanics, even housewives, ordinary folks with a boundless curiosity, a spirit of adventure, and an urge to know and understand and help their fellow man. In times of disaster or emergency, in wartime or peacetime, radio amateurs provide a lifeline of communications where no other can exist. Recently, for example, a man in Evanston, Illinois, answered his telephone one evening and to his utter astonishment found himself talking to his brother at the South Pole. The conversation relayed by local radio amateur Marvin Eichhorst. Listen. Carl, I was just wondering, uh, I wonder if you could tell me something about the camp life uh, down at the South Pole in... Uh... By the way, how's your weather conditions down there, Carl? It's on the mild side here in Chicago. Uh, come in, please. Uh, first, I will start off and say, well, I am about, uh, oh, I'm better than uh, 10,000 miles there from Chicago, down here at Little America. And uh, Little America is located about a mile and a half or two miles inland. It's located on Cannon Bay on the Ross Ice Shelf on the Ross Ice Shelf, and uh, we're on ice here. We're on ice that uh, is about 800 feet thick, and the ocean uh, measures about 2,000 feet deep under that. And even on the amateur bands, the mind of woman is as wonderful and mysterious as ever. Stay down there on Sanibel, over. We shall.
stay at a perfectly wonderful place called the Island Inn, which we love dearly, and I think you would like it also. It's very simple. You wear shorts all day, and then maybe wear a cotton dress at night. We get up around 8. We go to bed around 9. Over. Well, it just sounds divine. As man's horizons broaden, not merely to other lands, but to other worlds, his communications lifeline must broaden too. For without communication, man would be totally lost in this universe. On the 11th of November, 1935, a United States Army balloon established a world altitude record of 73,395 feet into the stratosphere. Its name, Explorer Two. Shortwave receivers for the home were virtually unknown then, Otherwise, you could have heard this amazing three-way shortwave conversation between the late Captain Edwin C. Music, world-famous airline pilot, Captain A.W. Stevens aboard the balloon, and a newspaper reporter in London, England. Can you hear me all right? Oh, yes, certainly. How's everything going? Oh, everything's going all right. We're going down now. The uh, altitude that we have at the present time is uh, less than 30,000 feet now. Hello, Captain Stevens. Hello. Uh, this is yes. the Daily Telegraph, this, London. This is Explorer 2. Congratulations to you and Captain Anderson on your great achievement. Uh, thank you very much. Sir. We're descending now a little too fast, and we're uh, putting our ballast. Oh, dear. So I have to uh, sign off, I, I believe, and uh, get back to uh, our duties. Lovely. Thank you very much. Hello, Captain Stevens. Yes? One more word. What yes. about that rip in your balloon? What about it? Yes, what happened? Well, we uh, fixed it. It was a rent about 17 feet long. Was it really? Did that well, now, listen, you'll have to excuse me because we've got to get busy. I hardly need add that man's progress in the quarter century since that historic event has been fantastic. The name of that gas-filled spaceship and the statistics are remarkably significant today. For in December of 1958, a new American explorer, Explorer 4, was launched. And from a height of not 14, but nearly 1,000 miles, you could have heard on a shortwave receiver the most dramatic message of hope and faith in modern history. The voice of the President of the United States, President Eisenhower. From outer space to Timbuktu, from pilot to sea captain, from overseas news to music in Rio de Janeiro, the great events of history and excitement of the moment are yours with the twist of a dial. You're in tune with the world, the amazing world of shortwave radio with a Hallicrafter's receiver. <laughs> 